Welcome to the Voices of Wall Street podcast, a show uncovering the news and trends that matter most for companies and their stocks across technology, media, retail, gaming, and more. I'm Tim Stenevik. Video game publishers have been on a tear. Electronic Arts, Activision Blizzard, and Take-Two Interactive are all at or approaching record highs. After all, these are the ultimate stay-at-home stocks. The thinking goes that if you can't go out to dinner or go to concerts or even movies, you'll play more video games. And if we continue to remain on lockdown, which one of our guests today thinks is going to be the case for months to come, the stocks are poised to move even higher. On today's show is Michael Pachter, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. We're talking video games and movie theater chains like AMC and IMAX. And a quick spoiler, he thinks there's a good chance that AMC might not even survive the pandemic. Also joining us today is Sam Stovall. He's the Chief Investment Strategist at CFRA. We're talking the technology sector's incredible run and whether or not it can continue. Now, here's Michael Pachter. So uh, video game companies, I mean, this is like the ultimate stay-at-home company, right? I mean, some of these companies that you follow, EA, Take-Two Interactive, uh, Activision Blizzard, these are close to all-time highs, if not at all-time highs. Um, can they sustain momentum now that sports are returning and the economy could be nearing a broader reopening? I mean, probably not if the economy fully reopens quickly and we get the V-shaped recovery and everybody goes back to work. We're going to have less time to play games. Um, I don't think any of those things are going to happen. Um, I think that we are closer now to that six to eight-week complete shutdown, everybody wear masks and let's kill the, the, the virus in its tracks. And so at least we'll enjoy this for six to eight weeks after we make that decision. And I think we're going to muddle along for another two or three months before we make that decision. Um, Trump's probably not going to do it. And it probably is going to have to wait till January 20th. Then we'll shut down until March. And guess what? The, the, keep, the printing presses for profit keep going at the publishers through March. Um, some of this is sustainable. I mean, they, they have won back a bunch of people who used to play games who have re- returned to the fold. And they have won a bunch of new consumers who hadn't played games before. Um, those tend to be more casual gamers. But I'm talking, you know, women, older people, um, younger kids playing Fortnite. And, you know, so the market has expanded. And I think engagement, hours spent playing games, is up around 40%. So to the extent that a game company has some type of uh, activity that allows in-game purchases, and they're going to benefit by about a 40% lift uh, at the rate, you know, to the rate of whatever they were charging before. Um, if they only have, you know, paid purchase games like Nintendo, uh, they're probably not benefiting as much because if you own the game already, you're just playing it more. Right. But if but if they are like you know, Candy Crush, if you were paying $5 a month in Candy Crush and you're spending 40% more time playing, you're spending $7 a month now. So we're going to find that out when they all report earnings. And the truth is, I think that that stocks tend to overshoot their fair value. Um, And so the answer to your question, do they have more to go up? Yes. As soon as they report, they're all going to just blow numbers away. And when they do, the market's going to love them irrationally and they're probably all going to hit 
all-time highs. So what happens, here we are in the midst of a recession. Uh, we don't know the full, uh, we don't know the, sort of the full effect of the economic damage at this point. And certainly what ends up happening with Congress with, with potentially more stimulus payments or, or weekly unemployment money. But what happens when that money dries up and, and still tens of millions of people are unemployed? Does that have an effect on consumer spending and gaming? Um, well, consumer spending for sure. And, you know, I think that this recession is not as broad as, as a normal recession. Um, you know, this is affecting certain people more than others. Correct. I think that hospitality is destroyed, you know, so cruise ships and hotels are just like almost down to zero, uh, restaurants, you know, to the extent that, that, they are closed and they can only offer takeout. There's just not as many people working there. Um, I literally had an issue with Bank of America yesterday. I was trying to close an account and they told me I had to go into a branch. And my local branch, which I haven't attempted to visit since March, um, is open two days a week instead of six. And I tried to make an appointment and the appointment calendar goes out two weeks, phone and in person, nothing available. So. Yeah. You know, what happened to the other four days and what happened to those people's jobs? And the answer is Bank of America is capitalizing on low traffic and they furloughed people. And you know that happened. So, you know, there's there's just odd pockets of people not working that aren't going to recover quickly and until the virus is is you know past us. Um, and if you think about it as a consumer, you know, do you really want to go to a store? Like, what's the point? Um, and so, you know, I think that you're going to see a decline in employment in the double digits for a long time. I mean, for another year, 10, 10% or more. And if you have 10% unemployment, you know, maybe that hits lower income people more severely. So maybe you only have a 6% decline in GDP, but you're going to have a lower amount of spend. Uh, and the, the market has been, you know, boosted by, loose monetary policy and two trillion so far of stimulus with another trillion coming. And when you think about that in the context of a $24 trillion economy, you know, that's a lot of spending in, in four months. I mean, we only spend two trillion a month, you know, overall in the US GDP. And they pumped, you know, two trillion in the last three months and another trillion coming. That's one and a half months of artificial spending. So when that dries up and it's going to, I think the, that you have a deep recession. Um, it's not going to be quite as broad. As I said, jobs like mine aren't impacted that much, you know, and, and a lot of jobs aren't impacted that much. But demand for products, I mean, we're just not, you know, buying as much. Uh, we're definitely not buying vacations, you know, to the extent we were. And the question is, are we buying new cars at the rate we were if we're not driving because we work from home, you know, so. I think you're going to see lower ad spend, you're going to see lower consumer spend, and you're going to see way lower wages because of unemployment. So yeah, do does, we... that, does that impact yeah. the games, guys? I mean, that, great question. And, you know, gaming is a, a middle income and higher activity um, because consoles cost so much. So, you know, the, the first few years of consoles – People are paying 400 bucks for a console. You have to have a good TV, you know, play to play a console game. And then games cost 60 bucks. That is just not, you know, a, a household with 20,000 of income below the poverty line. You know, that is an internet uh, household with a big screen TV 
And those people are probably not impacted as severely as lower income households. So early on, no, I don't think it's going to impact game sales very much at all. And then there is a school of thought that in a normal recession, unemployed people tend to escape and seek entertainment options more. So more gaming. And that makes sense to me as well. Now, this is not a normal recession, you know, but but the abnormal part of it is we're stuck at home, which means we are consuming more and we can't go to sporting events. So we are consuming more, you know, streaming entertainment into the home, which could be. Yeah. And if people aren't spending their discretionary income that they do have on entertainment, like going out to dinner or drinks with friends or going to sporting events, then they can spend it on this type of entertainment at home. And the truth is, you know, even if you eat out every night, you're doing it as takeout. And so I have yet to meet a person who said, yeah, I did take out our local restaurant and I bought two bottles of wine for a hundred bucks a piece. Right. No, no, you don't, you know, so no, instead of two dollars, two, 200 on wine, I'm exaggerating just to be like the rich guy. Um, you're drinking, you know, two, two bottles of $20 wine and it's the same wine and you're very happy to drink at home. So, you know, you're not going to the bar and having a $6 beer. You're staying home and having a $1 beer. And what happens to the $5 you didn't spend? That's $5 available for entertainment. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I do think that we're going to see less spending. I actually have a buddy who's a, a liquor distributor. And he, I said, oh, you must be killing it because people are stuck at home drinking so much. And he said, oh, no. He goes, the margin on liquor sales to supermarkets is super low. The margin on liquor sales to restaurants is super high. And we're selling nothing to restaurants, which is really interesting. But again... You know, we're not consuming in the restaurant, so we're spending less on our eating out because we're just doing takeout, you know, and my, my typical takeout meal for the family of four is like 60 bucks. And my typical restaurant bill for a family of four is 200. You know, right. you know that. I mean, it's just so I'm saving 140 every time we eat out. And that's just extra money I have to play empires and puzzles. <laughs> I'm wondering about big tech and where, where big tech fits into this conversation, because if we think about what's happening this week in Washington or, or you know, via Microsoft Teams or Zoom or you name whatever platform, uh, these executives are from some of the biggest tech companies in the world are going to testify over antitrust issues. Uh, Microsoft, obviously, we know has a huge presence in gaming, but what about Apple and Apple's ambitions with arcade and and Facebook's gaming ambitions. Well, where do they fit into this conversation? I mean, obviously there are aspects of COVID that benefit them beyond games, you know, so clearly Amazon, you know, is making money on, on selling everything to people by delivery, especially grocery. Um, And clearly uh, Microsoft's benefiting because work from home means more, you know, Office 365 set setups and Microsoft Teams setups. And so they're making plenty of money on the enterprise side. Um, on the game side, you know, it's it's probably more of a direct benefit to Google and Apple because mm-hmm. of mobile. Because, again, uh, everything mobile is free to play, which means in-game purchase. And so if you have a 40% lift in in-game purchase, Apple seeing a forty percent lift in in App Store. We explain so explain that because that's at that's at issue with this antitrust hearing. Is is this App Store tax? It is, and and you know, although I personally think it is egregious, and I think that the companies do collude. You know, small C. I don't want to charge them with a crime, but I do think it, that they they do 
collude. Um, their defense is that Steve Jobs didn't come up with the 30%. Um, 30% was what pay-per-view movies cost back in the day. So when Steve Jobs came up with 30%, you know, of music downloads and iTunes, it's because um, a movie was 30%. And the reason the record labels went along with it on iTunes was because the movie studios were already letting Comcast, you know, keep 30% on a pay-per-view movie. Mm. And so that ended up being the standard in console games. And that ended up being the standard in free-to-play app store games. And the fact that everybody charges 30%, and at least in some businesses like music sales or like movie pay-per-view VOD, um, there is competition. I mean, a movie theoretically could be shown only on Vudu or only on Amazon or only on, on iTunes. Um, it, but the, the studios like to show it on everything and everybody charges 30. So the Epic store is 12% and they're trying to stand out and, Maybe Congress can make an issue out of that. But the fact is that everybody charges 30% for everything. So I doubt that anything will come of this. Uh, They can only get them, though, on some kind of price-fixing thing. And Again, Apple can prove they didn't invent 30%, that Warner Brothers is already paying 30% to Comcast, you know, back back with uh, Batman, with Michael Keaton. Mm -hmm. So, So of the gaming stocks that you cover, or even ones you don't cover, which one is best positioned to emerge from the pandemic with the most upside? Um, the the greater the percentage of free to play, the bigger the benefit from higher engagement. So I, I think that the average consumer it, who already plays games is playing 40% more. So I think you're seeing a 40% lift in game activity. That's just massive. Oh, it is. I mean, the average, you know, the average person who plays games probably plays five to 10 hours a week, you know, which is not crazy because we watch 30 plus hours of television a week. So five to 10 hours of gaming isn't crazy. And that five is grown to seven and the 10 is grown to 14. I mean, it's somewhere in there. And so higher engagement means if you don't own the game, higher spend, you know, you're, you're spending. So a candy crush player who spends five bucks is going to spend seven period. And, so the guys who are 100% uh, free-to-play, which is Zynga and Glue and Play, you know, the, the purely mobile plays, they're going to benefit the most. The next biggest beneficiaries are the publishers that have a heavy chunk of free-to-play. Um, so, you know, Activision is about two-thirds free-to-play. Mm. And EA and Take-Two are about half. Ubisoft's about a quarter. And Nintendo is under 5%. You know, so they're going to benefit in perfect correlation to their mix. Now, obviously, in a quarter where a, a publisher doesn't release any games, they're going to benefit more. And that was kind of uh, EA this past quarter. You know, they didn't have any new games come out. So it's probably a bigger boost to their recurring revenue. Take-Two had disintegration come out, but everything else is recurring. So those guys are going to benefit a lot. And I think I think you're going to see big prints out of all these publishers. So I want to end with with shifting gears and talking about uh, theater chains, because I know this is something that you follow closely, specifically IMAX and AMC, starting with AMC. The company stock is is down 50 percent this year. It's been it's been brutal. I mean, there are questions about whether it's even going to emerge from this pandemic. What's your outlook for AMC? Um, If well, they're. 
their last announcement was that they had enough cash to get them through November. Um, they announced today that they had, you know, converted. A, Are you going to go debt. to the movie theater in November? No, no chance. Um, they they announced today that they converted a bunch of their debt to different different uh, tiers of interest rates. So theoretically, maybe they have another couple months beyond that. And other than debt, they have they have to rely upon the good graces of their landlords um, to either abate rent or defer rent. And I think and these landlords are not in a good position to do that because they're oftentimes in malls and they're not getting rent. Well, and that's, so the that's tenants. the problem. If the landlords aren't mortgaged, if the landlords own the property outright, they don't have an alternative. There's not somebody, you know, Johnson to come in and take over a movie theater and, and bring people in. That's just not going to happen. So the landlords have an incentive to work with them. But if the landlords have mortgages, they've got payments to make. And so, you know, something's got to give. And I think this is a greater problem in the market as a whole, that commercial real estate is going to go into default. PPP funds were able to be used to pay rent. And when PPP funds run out, which was this past week, um, I think the last bit of them went out this past week. I don't know what commercial land, you know, landlords do if they can't pay rent, if they're not getting rent um, and they have mortgages, then you're going to see defaults, mortgage defaults and a ripple through financials. Now, AMC, um, I don't know what they do, how you show movies if nobody's going to the movies. And if nobody's going, the studios aren't going to release them. So you just got the latest delay of Tenet and Mulan without an announcement of when they're coming out or what's going on. Um, the studios don't want to do, to release things direct to home video because Why not? They, the, the, the model of theatrical exhibition that generates about 50% of the lifetime value of the film. And I should, it's actually more like a third, but it's a giant chunk of the total value of the film to the studio. So, so Disney, Disney releasing Mulan on Disney plus is not going to make up for what they get in theater revenue, even close with new subscriptions. That's correct. Not even and, close. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to join Disney Plus to see one two-hour movie. I mean, you will if if they say all our movies heretofore will always release direct to Disney Plus. Maybe you'll join, but not for one movie. So the fact is that they want and need theatrical exhibition. And so until you get the virus under control, I mean, no, nobody's going to the movie theater unless there is a, a therapeutic and or a vaccine and preferably both. Um, you're just not going to do it. I mean, can you imagine being in the theater in the last row in the upper left corner and the guy in the front row in the, in the bottom right corner coughs? Aren't yeah. I mean, gonna, I'm just not going to be in a the theater. I'm going to get up and leave. Like just if he, if he's coughing uncontrollably, I am so out of there. I can't even tell you. And you know, what if he's just choking on a kernel of popcorn, but I don't want to be in there. Like, why would you? And how do they clean the seats in between? You know, you just can't do it. So, yes, it is realistic that these companies go away. Now, let me give you the analogy because I think this, this matters. Um, do you have a favorite restaurant that closed ever in your life? And the answer is yes. And what happened to the space? The answer is somebody else took it over and opened a Probably new restaurant. Probably a new restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. But the fact is that somebody's going to run the movie theaters and somebody's going to run the cruise lines. And do you actually care if it's Apollo or Provident Equity cruise lines, if the captain is still Captain Stubing and it's still 
<laughs> no, you know, and Isaac and whatever. I can't remember the woman's name, but you know, but it's the same crew. Like, no, I mean, Provident Equity and Apollo are going to hire the same, and BlackRock, they're going to hire the same people to run the cruise lines. And, and so, you know, Provident movie theaters or Silver Lake movie theaters instead of AMC, it's going to look the same when it comes back. So, you know, yes, as stocks, these are tough stocks. And you said IMAX and AMC. Fortunately for IMAX, uh, they don't own any real estate. Hmm. So they don't have leases to worry about. The, their, their theaters are all owned by the underlying theater company. And fortunately for IMAX, I think that was really dumb five years ago, but smart now. They have a, the biggest chunk of their theaters are in China, which is reopening. So, and those Chinese theaters have a limit on Western yeah. films. So there's plenty of Chinese language content to, to play in those theaters. So they're going to get through it. IMAX will be fine. Uh, but, and Cinemark has less debt and probably more compliant, willing landlords. But yeah, I don't know what you do if, you know, I, I do think the landlords, to the extent they can, will cooperate. And I think all these guys will get through to, you know, February, March, April. I just don't know when we're getting a vaccine and I don't think the consumer returns. So all this noise that Trump and his administration are making about getting back to work and let's reopen the economy. You know, you can't open the economy if the consumer doesn't show up. And I'm not talking about the unemployed consumer. I'm talking about the healthy employed consumer. Right. Who wants if, to, re who wants to remain if, healthy. If it doesn't matter if theaters open up, if nobody goes. Right. Pactor says you can't open up the economy if the consumer doesn't show up and he doesn't think the consumer will show up until there's a vaccine, which is good news for video game publishers and terrible news for movie theaters. After all, would you go to a theater to watch a movie now? Let's now turn to Sam Stovall for a higher level view of the market. Sam is the chief investment strategist at CFRA and also the author of The Seven Rules of Wall Street. Sam believes that tech will continue to dominate especially during the pandemic. And he points out that if you had diversified away from tech into consumer staples, you could have gotten the same returns, but without the volatility. Here's Sam Stovall. Sam, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So tech has been on an absolute tear. It's something we've talked a lot about on the Voices of Wall Street podcast, certainly outperforming the S&P 500 year to date. But as you've pointed out repeatedly, the tech sector has outperformed the broader market for a couple of decades at this point. I guess my question is, when does this stop? If people keep piling into tech, it's not going to continue to outperform. Well, I, I would tend to think that, you know, because the future really is based on technology, that that is an area of growth, an area that can keep inflation down. Uh, and especially with the uh, rising cases of COVID, it just reminds us that whether we're dealing with business or whether we're dealing with social, that technology plays an ever increasingly important role. What's the regulatory risk, though? Here we are, end of July. We're recording this before the big tech executives are, are, are set to face lawmakers on Capitol Hill over antitrust issues. Are there regulatory risks? And, and, and look, I mean, you know better than anyone else. Uh, the, the large mega cap tech companies have accounted for the S&P 500's performance this year. Exactly. Uh, so far this year, tech is up about 15%. And if you look to the three, five, 10, 15, 25 years back, uh, tech has outperformed the market by anywhere from one and a half times to four times. 
Um, and so, yes, I think some people are sort of wondering, gee, do we need to control that? Tech now represents 27% of the S&P 500. Uh, when you're dealing with the uh, the top 10 stocks in the S&P, many of them coming from technology, they represent 30% of the weighting of the S&P 500. But uh, Congress is not going to try to control how big a company is within an index. I think what they're going to try to do is uh, to increase regulations and so forth in terms of uh, what can be said, what cannot be said, what can be policed. Uh, what is not policed, etc. Um, so that sh should make for an interesting conversation in the three months leading up to the election. Yeah, but I mean, as far as a business, the businesses are concerned, it's a complete waste of time. If that's what the well, focus is. Yeah, I think it's a waste of time. But a lot of times uh, what happens in Congress is really just posturing, uh, just to let the electorate know that the uh, Congress people are not going to let Big business get away with things, even though after the hearings are over, they continue to get away with things. <laughs> so, so you don't expect any sort of meaningful conversation to start about antitrust because there are serious issues. I mean, Apple has issues with with apps that it competes with, Apple Music versus Spotify, for example, the so-called app store tax. I mean, Google and Facebook's concentration of the online ad market is something that. I think raises a lot of concerns, especially for, for companies that are trying to compete in advertising there. Those are real issues. Well, that's true. Uh, maybe, you know, the question of antitrust comes up again where, you know, gee, have, have we really had a company that was forced to break up since AT&T? Uh, and so, you know, maybe we do get more of that. Uh, I would think, however, that during the three months leading up to the election, not much is going to happen. But should we end up with a trifecta, a triple play, where the Democrats take control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, then I think that there is the possibility of increased government regulation mm. being applied on them. Interesting. You recently wrote about this so-called free lunch strategy. It has to do with the benefits of, of diversification. So keeping in mind that the general audience, give us an idea of, of what exactly that means and how it can be applied to this current market environment. You're essentially saying, even though tech has performed so well, you could have performed better by moving a little bit out of tech. So the idea of correlation being you want to mix two sectors, uh, one that zigs when the other one zags. The free lunch or getting something for nothing, I think can be accomplished by matching technology with consumer staples. I mean, think of technology as the poster child for growth Consumer staples, food, beverage, tobacco is the poster child for defensiveness. Since 1990, the S&P 500 technology sector was by far the best performing group. 12.4% uh, is their compound annual growth rate, but you paid for it in the form of volatility that looked like an EKG diagram. <laughs> Match that with consumer staples, however, meaning a 50% weighting in tech and a 50% weighting in consumer staples rebalanced annually, you got the exact same compound annual growth rate of 12.4%, but your volatility dropped by 40% because staples did well when the market was challenged. I like to say that when the going gets tough, the tough go eating, smoking, and drinking. And so they <laughs> gravitate to those areas where the demand remains fairly static. And maybe because of the lack of volatility in the same return, you're adding a few years to your life. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, you can certainly sleep better at night. And the older we get, the more we need closer to eight hours. Just hold off on the eating, drinking, and smoking. Agreed. Agreed. So S&P 500, you have a 12-month price target, well, or, or just target, rather, of, of 34.35. Um, what needs to happen for well, us to end there? Well, I would almost say that we would need to slow down. Uh, because with the S&P 500 now recouping, uh, we're only about 5% away from the all-time high set back on February 19th. It reminds me that history can serve as virtual Valium, meaning that just look to stock market history and that can help calm your nerves because since World War II, whenever we have had a bear market that was less than 40%, the S&P got back to break even in an average of 14 months. So history would imply, hey, we will get back to break even by May of 2021. Yet those people who are optimistic are saying, well, wait a minute. If you take a look at 1966, we got back to a new all-time high in seven years. In 1990, we got back in four, uh, I said seven years, I meant uh, seven months. In 1990, we got back to break even in only four months, and in 1982, got back in three months. So we could see this bull market set a new all-time high, possibly by the end of the year. But isn't this a one a little different? Because we're still in the midst of this recession. There are tens of millions of people who are not working right now. It's unclear what Congress is going to do in order to extend federal unemployment benefits. And then, of course, you have what the Fed has been doing for months, in terms of expanding its own balance sheet by trillions of dollars, many argue, and I certainly get it, that they're the ones who've been propping up the stock market by buying so much debt. Exactly. Well, I think that the reason that the market is so optimistic about things is because the Fed very quickly cut rates to zero and started buying up uh, treasuries, corporate bonds, um, municipal bonds, and basically said, we will do whatever it takes to support this economy. Congress finally got its act together and came through with a multiple of stimulus packages, one that's still working its way through uh, the Senate. And chances are that instead of it just being $1 trillion, we'll end up being two, maybe even $3 trillion when all is said and done. So what is different about this uh, recession, this bear market, is the speed with which the Fed and Congress has responded to it. And also, I think investors say, well, wait a minute, it was started uh, by man. We, in a sense, self-imposed this on ourselves. So it's not like a financial crisis where we don't know what's going to happen next. We pretty much do know what can be done and, and will likely be done. Uh, later this week, we're going to end up with the second quarter GDP. That's probably going to be down anywhere from 32 to 34 oh. percent. But most economists are anticipating a 27 percent gain in the third quarter, followed by a near 10 percent advance in the fourth quarter. So uh, it still seems as if the V is the shape of this recovery. We're just not sure whether it's a capital or a lowercase V. So so. I mean, things have to change quickly in order for uh, to see that type of recovery, though. Well, we're, we actually are looking at economic data that's coming in better than expected. The rally that we saw 
I called a BTE rally, meaning better than expected. Uh, the economic data had been coming in. The NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, pinpointed the start of the recession in February. It'll probably end up being the shortest recession in history when it troughs in April. Uh, we're going to be does, getting. But but does that does that also depend on what Congress does in terms of federal unemployment benefits? Because if that six hundred dollars, that six hundred dollars is up, and that was helping a lot of people buy a lot of consumer goods, and the consumer consumer is is responsible for this economy uh, well that is i think one reason why there will be an additional uh, amount of money that is offered in this coming stimulus package that'll end up being closer to 70 percent of one's uh, take-home pay from before to provide them still with the initiative according to the administration of wanting to go back to work not just saying hey i'm getting more in unemployment now than i was when i was working so it's uh, this delicate balance that both houses have to work out. Growth versus value, the sort of age-old debate when it comes to, to stocks. Explain for, for our listeners what that means and also how you're viewing growth versus value at this time. Well, the, the old rule of thumb was you basically take all of the stocks in the S&P 500 you sort them high to low in terms of price to book ratio. And the higher the price to book are called growth, the lower the price to book are called value. Today, there are a few more inputs into that decision as to what's growth, what's value. And now they also even have something that uh, is blend. You know, it's like saying, um, nope, everything is all mixed together. So we're coming out with different shades of olive drab. Uh, but still, you've got growth and value. But growth is traditionally your, your technology stocks, those that uh, tend to have very high growth expectations down the road. Well, those have outperformed value um, over the past many years, I think, because of very, very low interest rates. In the six months heading into declines of 10% or more and six months after declines of 10% or more, the growth stocks have beaten value stocks about three out of every four times. And really, it's data going back to 1980, when the interest rates had been in a secular downward trend. So I would tend to say that in general, it's very low interest rates that look uh, that make growth stocks look much more attractive when they put them into financial models. So here we are almost a month into the second half of, of 2020. What sectors are you overweight for the remainder of the year? Uh, well, right now we are overweight technology, communi uh, communication services, and healthcare. We look to a variety of things. We look to the analysts and their buy, hold, and sell recommendations. We look to a market cap weighting of their target price differentials, meaning what is the stock trading at today versus what the analyst thinks it'll be 12 months from now. Uh, we also take a look at some um, relative strength indicators, which sectors are outperforming the market, et cetera. And so even though people have been questioning technology's leadership, uh, this sector is still trading at a 14% discount to its average relative PE over the past 20 years. So technology also in this most recent quarter, the second quarter earnings reporting period, uh, expectations were for a decline of close to 11%. Now it's 5.5%. Revenues are expected to be flat. Now they're expected to be up 
4%. So I think that technology has earned its leadership position because its fundamentals continue to outpace other sectors. Do you see a pullback happening before this recession is, is over? Oh, I think pullbacks could happen pretty much any time. Uh, we have had 59 pullbacks. That's a price decline of 5 to 10% since World War II. And you really don't need a, uh, uh, the threat of a recession to cause a pullback. It's basically whenever we've just gotten ahead of ourselves. And as a result, what happens is the market digests recent gains. But the amazing thing is the speed of recovery that on average, while it's taken one month to go from that high to the five to 10% trough, it's taken about a month and a half to get back mm. to break even. So it's just amazing the, the vacuum of valuations that tends to get filled by the opportunistic investors. Sam Stovall, so great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my conversations today with Michael Pachter and Sam Stovall. We'll see you next time on the Voices of Wall Street podcast.